following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. All right, it's a good, good early afternoon, and um, it's really, really good to be with you all. Um, uh, well, today um, I'm actually going to be giving an account of what happened and what the Lord has been doing in our lives this past year. Hence, I'm fully, I feel very prepared. I have my um, iPad and box of tissues, and <laughs> you're ready to go, okay? All right, set that there. Um, uh, I'll be sharing what happened this past year alongside um, Jesus' interaction, rather peculiar ministry to a Gentile, uh, more specifically a Canaanite woman, uh, found in Matthew 15, 21 to 28, as the foundation as to what I'm about to share. Uh, this is a passage the Lord has pressed upon my heart this past year, as it in many ways parallels the journey that the Lord has had me and my family on. Um, uh, this past year has been one of the hardest years of our lives, and the Lord has been taking us on a journey of suffering, but also a deep knowing and growing of our faith. And I just want to also give thanks to our friends and family that have supported us and, of course, Emmanuel Church, uh, the brothers and sisters here that have just um, played such an important role in restoring us and uh, helping our wounds to heal. Uh, from dire circumstances to hardened hearts, the question that we want to ask, answer is, how, how does God really grow faith? How does he grow faith, knowledge, and intimacy with him? How does he grow this faith? And, um, you know, uh, the pattern by which God has worked around um, and in me and my family parallels that of the divine interaction of Jesus and the Canaanite woman. And so please, uh, as I read, please follow along on Matthew, uh, with the passage Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Starting with verse 21. And Jesus went from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold... A Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, yes, Lord, yet, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Please pray with me one more time. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us and help us to be truly present in your presence. And Lord, from the story that you wrote in your word, as well as the story that you've been writing about our family, I pray, Lord, that from it, that we'd come away with a, with a brand new view as to who you are. We ask you, Lord, transform us uh, during this special time together. And may the power of your Holy Spirit 
informed and guided by your good word. Bless us and keep us, Lord. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, in the midst of trouble, we see extraordinary faith exhibited in an unlikely character, a Gentile Canaanite woman. And we'll observe how the Lord took an ugly situation, a woman's daughter lost to a demon, and then from it produced greater knowledge and faith within her. And in turn, in the midst of hardship, a testimony as to how God has been producing greater personal knowledge and faith within me and my family. So how does God forge genuine faith as well as deeper knowledge and intimacy with him? His way. Right? So through this, we'll go through first his silence, second his truths, and third his end. As to how he forges genuine faith. So first his silence. Matthew 15, 21 to 23. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. He did not answer her a word. The Canaanite woman, probably coming out from a home, was crying, yelling for Jesus in desperation. She even refers to Jesus as Lord and Son of David, showing at least some knowledge as to who Jesus was and who some of the Jews believed him to be, the son of David, the descendant of King David, who would be the Messiah, the Savior, whose rule would last forever. She, she comes pleading for, for help and tells of her horrific situation. A demon has taken ownership over her daughter, at least for that time. She had lost her daughter to the darkness. What is the first thing Jesus does? By giving a word of encouragement, truth, maybe a miracle here and there, physical healing. He does none of that. Right? The first thing he does is nothing. Absolutely nothing. And he meets her with silence, verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Now, now this isn't... This isn't the only time we see this in the Bible. There are multiple episodes where we find the silence of Jesus or the quietness of God, right? So how about the time when the disciples found themselves on the boat, caught in a violent storm, thinking, we're all going to die. We're all going to drown. What do, you, what do you find Jesus doing? Sleeping. Sleeping. Silent in the midst of a raging storm. Or how about uh, upon the death of Jesus' good friend, Lazarus? Being silent as he arrived a full four days later, Lazarus' death, only to be met by his grieving sisters upon his tardy arrival. Or the silence of God, encountered when Job's friends went on their tirade of accusatory and helpful and unhelpful soliloquies towards their suffering friend. And then finally, what about the four centuries of not hearing a peep from God? Four centuries that separate the last words of Malachi in the Old Testament and Matthew in the New Testament. No, no, not a unique occurrence by any means, but, but it's almost always a troubling one. I would imagine that we, including this poor Canaanite woman, would readily relate to David's song in Psalm 13 and encountering an absent God in our pain as David cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In the midst of trials and loss and tragedy, and tragedy there's, hardly, there's hardly anything worse then the hardship and suffering you may be going through, except maybe one thing, encountering God's silence in the midst of our trials, loss, and tragedies. Well, why does he do that? Right? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. But why then God's presence through his perceived absence? What's, what's with the inaction? 
God, Father, what's with the lack of care? Why are you, why are you hiding from us? Here we find a desperate Canaanite woman crying out to Jesus and conjuring up titles and references that you wouldn't expect a, a non-Jew to know. And I could only speculate that what she must have struggled with, with her own faith in the midst of this silence. Is, is he really the Messiah? Wait, wait, what's going on? Why, why are you just looking at me? Why aren't you helping? Are you, are you who people say you are? Jesus, Lord, Son of David, the Son, the one and only Messiah, my hope, would you help me? It was during some tumultuous times this past year where we encountered God's silence. This is where me and my wife encountered a, great str- a greater struggle more than the challenging external circumstances. It was a struggle of our own faith. Questions arose from my own aching soul from the ground-shaking events of this past year. How could you hurt us so much this past year, God? Where are you? Why are you leaving us all alone and going through this? The very foundations of my faith felt like it was crumbling apart, and, and I, was left to, I was left afloat in a fog, feeling lost, losing my bearings, not knowing who I was or where I was going. Are you really who you say you are? How, how could you do this? Does, does this whole Christian thing really matter? Is the church really the means in which you will reach the world? Is, is Jesus, is the gospel really the answer that the world has been looking for? The science of the Lord in the midst of loss, pain, and suffering can bring about doubt, confusion, and anger. That silence can bring about some pretty perilous and hopeless times. And you would think this would just add to the suffering, right? Add to the barriers that lie between a healthy and good relationship with God, right? I mean, is there anything good that can come out of the muteness of the Lord? Maybe we can look at it this way. Maybe... Imagine with me, and this is a picture that I've, that have, I've had impressed upon me this past year. Was just imagine uh, just beautiful crashing, uh, a beautiful crashing of beautiful waves upon a shore. Right? Now, as the waves hit the shore and it retreats back, it leaves what? It would leave trash, pollution, debris, and dregs. And I kind of thought of God's silence in that way. The silence of the Lord is like the receding wave after crashing into the shore and leaves debris and pollutants out for all to see. You see, what the silence of the Lord seems to do is that it can expose. It exposes what really lies in our hearts. On the boat with the disciples in the storm, as Jesus was taking a a sovereign slumber, what was exposed in the disciples was fear and lack of faith. For Job and his friends, God's silence exposed their poor theology, wrong thinking, unloving ways, and pride. For Jesus, Jesus, his four-day absence after his good friend Lazarus dies, both Mary and Martha They show their lack of trust, anguish, and blame towards Jesus. That was put on full blast. God's silence exposes us, exposes the things that could be hindering our faith. It reveals what we we are really made of, makes visible the inner substance of our hearts, making what was invisible rise to the surface. It could be things we thought we believed in for most of our lives, It could be the surfacing or resurfacing of our struggles, hidden darkness, our deep-seated issues. And looking back, I see that in his silence, he faithfully uncovered what lay hidden within my own heart, things that hindered my faith to no end. So what were those hard times? What were those hard times when me and my family felt his silence? And what did those moments expose within me? 
From 2009 to 2017, I was doing full-time ministry as a pastor in St. Louis when I received a powerful call from the Lord to minister in Chicago, to come back home to Chicago. My, my family and I moved, left, leaving behind a church family that we dearly loved, and we, and we thought we were going to be with them for years to come. In, in Chicago, I joined a church as an associate pastor, but the role quickly changed to that of a church planter. The church plant was initially an exciting adventure for me. I really thought this opportunity came from the Lord as he had begun to give me a heart to plant or be part of a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, gospel-centered community for the inner city, for the urban city. I really thought this opportunity came from the Lord as he began to give me this kind of heart even before I came to Chicago, long before he called us to Chicago. I thought I would eventually plant this kind of church five to ten years down the line upon my relative Chicago just to get my feet wet. But as I gazed upon the launch team in the neighborhood we were going to plant in, it checked all the boxes, and I thought, wow, God is making this calling come to fruition already. Deep struggle and the silence of God was apparent a year and a half later. Around late August of 2018, my family and I made a sad departure from the church plant. It was probably the hardest season that we ever faced. All the, prior, all the prior years of being a minister just paled in comparison to that, that hardship. Yes, there were moments of blessing in encountering God's faithfulness, but far too often there was stress, moments of depression, pressure, confusion, depression, and burnout. We, le- we left saddened and hurt. All of a sudden, I found myself not doing what I've always done for a decade, and I felt lost in the dark. And as hurt as we were, we felt such deep loss in losing a church family, another church family that we loved so dearly. It felt like a divorce and all the negative repercussions that come with a loss of relationships. I never knew what it was like to lose a job up until now. And it was disorienting. All of a sudden, I lost a big part of my identity. It was like I didn't know who I was. And after that, feeling like a failure and sidelined by God, I never thought I'd ever do ministry nor want to do ministry ever again. In his silence, God was exposing my biggest idol, ministry. Upon this personally world-shaking event, this loss, this tragedy, this plan not going according to plan, came even more hardship. Where else did we encounter the silence of God? A couple of months after our departure from the church plant, now jobless and without a home, we ended up moving in with my parents. Now, most of us have had our stories and accounts of how hard it is to live with our parents. More often than not, the testimonies of people moving back in their parents' home is not, it's not a pleasant one. We say things like, man, it's tough moving back in with my parents. Why? Because of family baggage. Sometimes there are family issues that would bring about some overwhelming even traumatic moments that can leave enormous scars for years to come, well into your adulthood. I had good reason never wanting to move back home to Chicago, and a part of me had forgotten why I never wanted to live with my parents ever again. There were reasons why I tried to stay far away from my parents, particularly my own father. And now, with my wife and kids living in the same roof, they were about to encounter a taste of what I lived with growing up. I grew up with an angry father, with an explosive family dynamic, where emotional and verbal abuse was experienced, not only from my dad to me, 
and my younger brother, but unfortunately, also from me to my younger brother as well. After about four months of living with my parents, I was reawakened to the reality as to why I never wanted to live with my family of origin. Now it was not only me, but now my wife experiencing firsthand the miscommunication, the anger, the yelling, the micromanaging, and controlling nature of a father who probably experienced his own hurt growing up. But we had, but we had enough. We had enough. There were too many episodes where I had to defend and protect my wife and children from my old family dynamic, and so we moved out. We moved out. And man, you got thinking, man, you got to be kidding me. First losing a church full of feelings of betrayal and broken dreams, and now this hardship in moving in and temporarily, temporarily living with my parents. Encountering the abuse that I experienced as a child all over again. But now this time with my own family. God, God, what are you doing? What was God exposing here? My deepest grief. My relationship with my earthly father. And that wasn't all. From the exposure of my biggest idol to my deepest grief, the silence of God was finally felt here. With no job and more time with my wife and kids, I was coming to see what I was really made out of as a father to my children. As my struggles and failures were now manifesting themselves in the worst of ways than ever before, this, I I just want to read to you just a, a journal entry, which sums up this great struggle that I've had. Uh, as a dad for a good while now. It's from uh, April 25th, 2019. It was entitled, uh, it's entitled, a, a Resurfacing Monster. I felt so angry, bad, disrespected when I felt that Hannah was not listening and openly defiant in her disobedience towards me. For some reason, she gets the worst of me, and I believe she exhibits such, and when I believe and when I believe she exhibits such behavior, I say I believe or when I perceive it because it's not always the case. She isn't always meaning to be disobedient. It's usually a reaction or response with all that is going on in her. It's her reaction to whatever negative emotion brewed up within her due to, her, to an unfavorable event. I can't always see that, especially when I'm tired and she gets the meanest side of me. Man, here I am, snarling at a four-year-old who I feel did the worst thing she could ever do to me, not do what I say. Why is that? Why such a strong reaction? Why is she touching down? What is she touching down in my heart? Why do, why do I lash? Why do I do that? Why can't I show my daughter Hannah more grace, more gentleness, patience? Why, why does crud? I didn't use the word crud because youth group's here. I didn't. I censored it. Why does, why does junk come out instead of fruit towards her? Because there's something in there that I need to encounter. There's a fortress that I built that's protecting something. And when Hannah disobeys, I do everything I can to protect that fortress of ang- with anger. I've had this story of being an impatient and harsh and a harsh parent towards my eldest daughter, Hannah. And it seemed to be getting worse during this past year of hurt, hardship, and his silence. So what was God? And his silence exposing with me through this. My darkest shame. My darkest shame. My parenting. The parenting of my daughter. So in the midst of hardships, in the midst of his silence, it became obvious what the things in my life were that prevented me from greater knowledge and faith and love to God. My biggest idol, ministry, 
my deepest grief, my relationship with my father, and my darkest shame, my parenting. In order to grow faith, the stumbling blocks must be uncovered. It must be unmasked. It was his silence that exposed such things. Okay. So how else? How else does God break down the walls that lie between us and him? Um, God just doesn't sit in his silence. He just doesn't sit there in that, right? He doesn't stay there for too long. In his timing, he breaks that silence, doesn't he? The one true and only God broke his silence at the end of the book of Job by showing up and giving a magnificent rebuke and display of him as creator of all things. God broke his 400-year silence loudly and convincingly by the sending of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, in the world to save it. Jesus ceased from his silence when he woke up from his nap and quieted the storm that threatened the lives of his disciples. And he does so here in the beginning of verse, in the latter part of verse 23. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out to us. And he answered, I was, only sent, only, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But, but she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus does eventually break the silence. The disciples were basically telling Jesus to help her so she, so, so, they can, so she can get on her way, so that they can get on their way. Jesus, she's begging, just heal her already so she can go away. Jesus replies to their rash request, my mission is to God's chosen people. I, I'm, I'm to bring the blessing and salvation to them. The woman overhears it, draws closer to Jesus, kneels down right before him and begs, Lord, come on, help me, help me. His reply, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yo, man, Jesus, what's up? What's with the grumpy attitude? You just called her a dog. He goes from silent Jesus to, to rude Jesus. That's what I've always thought. You know, scholars are kind of divided about this. You know, there are some scholars that, that lean towards the more classic interpretation. Yes, he was being mean, but that was to test her. Right? There are others that think he was being neutral, that Jesus, his blunt answer is not really a literal statement, that calling her and her country, countrymen dogs was but of a parable, a proverbial statement used to make clear of his mission. Other scholars if you speculate that Jesus said this with a smile, in a joking manner, I don't agree, but some do. Like a, like a friend that lovingly insults you or jokes with you. Right? So anyway, no matter, what, no matter what camp you fall into, whatever tone really was used by Jesus, the truth is he was sharing, no matter what tone, a biblical truth. He was sent to minister to the chosen children of God, his lost foe, to his fellow Jews first. And th- that was a hard truth, but it was a truth nonetheless. And it was phrased, listen, it was phrased perfectly and given at the right time for the Canaanite woman to respond to Jesus' purposely given incomplete truth. Verse 27, she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, echoing back such promises like Genesis 12, 3, a promise given to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and, and, you and, and, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Isaiah 49, 6, the second servant song that describes prophetically uh, the Messiah to come. Verse 6, he says, the Lord says, God says, it is not too late a, a thing, it's not too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. 
Jesus had every right to be astonished and delighted by her words. She was saying, yes, yeah, 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 you're called to your people. You are to minister to the chosen people of God who are lost, who need to find him again, just as in the household, the children have priority in being fed before the dogs of the household. That makes sense. Yet, there's always enough to go around. Always enough to go around. Feed your children first, but there is still more that is available for those who are outside of Israel. Jesus' incomplete truth brought out faith in the form of the complete truth uttered by this Canaanite woman. Somehow, Jesus' seemingly unfavorable actions, coupled with an oddly phrased biblical truth, had the perfect tone, delivery, wording, and timing, and as a result, induced greater faith from this foreigner, this non-Jew. It was a truth that encountered her in deep and profound ways. Look, look there, there's knowledge, there's knowledge, and, and there's deep heart convictions. She had a heart-deep conviction. There's stated beliefs, you know, things we say we believe in, and there's true beliefs, beliefs that are reflected in our values and behavior. She had true belief. There's truth that hits our heads and truth that hits our hearts. She had truth that hit her heart. There's just different levels to this stuff, right? It's, it's one thing to get an email with your name CC'd on it with a bunch of others, but it's another thing to get an email just addressed to you. Right? How about when you hear a sermon when, and with everything said, it, it was like it was written just for you in your current situation? Or when a comforting promise comes your way at the most opportune time in the midst of of hopelessness and despair. There's different levels in which truth can hit you. And the same truths that you may have heard all your life, you don't realize how superficial these truths are until God somehow delivers the very same truths his way, his way, with everything about you in mind in order to forge and grow genuine faith. Just as Jesus met this woman with truth, perfectly worded, perfectly timed, and perfectly given, it was his truth and perfect form and timing that met my biggest idol, my deepest grief, and my darkest shame. For my biggest idol, ministry. Listen, for the most part, uh, for the most of my Christian life, I was involved with doing some kind of ministry that accompanied my faith. Now out of a job, I was in foreign territory. My, my bearings were lost, and I realized I had forgotten what the Christian life was like outside of doing ministry. With that, I was full of bitterness and blame. I could only see the unfavorable circumstances and individuals that I felt were responsible for our departure from the church plant. I couldn't see my responsibility in the whole matter. We were the victims here. We were the victims here. They were the bad guys. During one afternoon this past summer, I made my way to an empty Catholic cathedral. It was a beautiful place. Stained glass windows, very high ceiling. And it's there that I sat in one of the pews and I had a heart to heart and I had a heart to heart with God. I asked him, Lord, what happened? What happened? What am I missing? We've been hurt. Kingdom dreams dashed. All that makes sense to me is to blame. We know what happened to us, but what am I not seeing here? What occurred next, it felt like my heart was being gripped with revelation and conviction. I felt that I heard him say something to this effect. You took my calling in, in your life and made it your own. 
You hijacked the mission I had for you. You thought you were the center of that church plan, the linchpin in making that church work. I give callings and I can take them away. My kingdom can and will spread with or without you. It was a glorious time of deep repentance. I was floored with sorrow in my participation in hijacking the Lord's work and, and making me the center. And in that sorrow for, for my posture against the Lord and his calling for our lives came in awe of him, of his majesty and power and glory. It was truly a Job, Isaiah-like encounter where it was clear that he was God and I was not. And how dare I try to be? I was utterly humbled and in awe of this clear view of a holy God against my sinful, out-for-self heart. It was at at that point that I felt like I'd rather be in his presence than be sovereign over my own life. That I'd rather be in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. That I'd gladly lay down my crowns and and my accomplishments just so that I can have him. It is there that I turned from the idol of ministry and ran towards God again. And you know what? He was ready to receive me. I don't belong to a job. I belong to him. Truth had come my way, and it was a glorious time in encountering our holy God. By his truth, he dealt with my biggest idol. How else did his truth come? His truth came to my deepest grief, my relationship with my father. One night I was watching a movie with my wife, Grace, and and the main character's broken relationship with his parent brought to mind my own broken relationship with my father. After the movie, I started to share how I could really relate with, with the main character of the movie. All of a sudden, I erupted in this deep sadness. I started to weep uncontrollably. It caught Grace off guard. She was like, what? What's going on? I was grieving. I was letting out an emotion that had been clogged up within me far too long. Sadness that I've had since I was a child, but I stuffed it inside of me. You see, the thing that I've learned, especially this past year, that emotions, when they're not dealt with well, when they're not expressed, whether it's grief, sadness, frustration, anger, when they're all tucked inside of you, it's like a pressure cooker without an outlet for the steam to come out. And if that steam doesn't come out, it will eventually come out in very destructive ways. It leads to inner dysfunction, which can look at times uh, like irrational, emotional reactions to seemingly mild instances or occasions. Other times, this dysfunction can look like self-preservation, and, and you wall up your heart. You protect. You numb yourself so you don't feel anymore. And though this may serve to protect you, you become restricted in showing love to others and rob yourself of feeling love and experiencing love from others, even from God. All because of the walls you built up for yourself. So as I wept and searched within me as to what's going on, I found that the wailing and tears were sourced from never feeling like I had a father that accepted me for who I was. I was processing, grieving appropriately, giving the steam of my emotion an out that needed to be expressed to lead to a healthier emotional state. In that saddened state, it is there that God encountered me again with the divine truth that I may not have had the most loving and ideal father here on earth, but I do have a heavenly father who loves me 
and accepts me unconditionally. It was a truth that I had heard and preached about many times before in my Christian walk. But here came a deeper encounter with the great truth that there is a Father, a Heavenly Father, that truly cares for me. Not based on my performance or accomplishments, not based on my mistakes, failures, and the hidden ugly layers of my heart. He loves me unconditionally based on the solid life and death of Jesus Christ. And that can never be taken away from me. He can never be taken away from me. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. This truth encountered my deepest grief in order to give me my deepest joy. Finally, how did this truth encounter my greatest shame, my parenting? Just to give you an idea of how bad it was getting, my wife was often very concerned when it would be me, when it, when it would just be me and the kids. Basically, she just didn't feel safe with me as their dad. It was coming to a point where Grace and I were having conversations about me being away from the kids for a period of time. There was a moment when Hannah was awakening my anger again, and I, I found myself begging her to stop because I didn't want to lose control in front of her. I said, please, please, Hannah, just please do what I say. Please. I didn't know what to do or how to control this anger that raged inside of me. This over-excessive reaction to a toddler. I, I so desperately wanted to stop, and I just wanted to hide. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, this past year, Grace and I have sought out professional Christian counseling in helping us process our departure with the church, uh, our experience living with my mother and father, and getting to the bottom of my uncontrollable anger. It was during this dark time of my parenting that the counselor touched upon a word. And he wrote it on, a board, on, a, on his whiteboard. And it said, worthless. It said, worthless. He wrote it on the board. And from time to time, I would peer up at it. Then there came this surge of emotion of utter despair. Being worthless. Worthless. Was a message that I had received growing up over and over again. It's how, interpreted, it's how I interpreted the abuse that I experienced, being worthless, feeling like I didn't matter. What I did or say just didn't matter, and my very existence doesn't matter. That was the source of my anger. My anger was a mechanism to protect myself from a wound in my very being that I was truly worthless. I found out that every time Hannah would act up or disobey, that I felt like if I felt like she acted up or disobeyed, that her behavior was giving me feelings of being upset, and my feelings, my feelings had a message with it. I attached a message with my feelings that I was worth nothing to her. I had put meaning to the feeling of being disrespected, not listened to, brushed aside, non-existent, and that meaning was built up over the course of my life. What I was actually doing was placing the responsibility on Hannah to make me feel worthwhile. Significant, And when she didn't, she would get a blast of my wrath. And in turn, she would be hurt and or angry. And I had a moment of self-realization and clarity. 
I wasn't consciously aware I was doing this to my daughter. The truth is this. I'm not to look for my worth in others because my worth has already been established in Christ. The following day, after that counseling session, it was just me and the kids having lunch at home. Hannah started throwing, throwing a tantrum that she didn't get her way. And I sat there. I just sat there waiting for the inner monster to rise up again. And you know what? It never showed up. It never showed up. And then I remember being caught up off guard, caught off guard for the lack of the usual rise of anger within me. Instead, for what felt like was for the first time, I saw my daughter. I saw, I saw my daughter, a little girl who was hurt and needed to be comforted by her father. I felt empathy for her. So I spoke to her tender words and embraced her and watched her calm down and find comfort in the one that should have been comforting her for her entire existence. I could feel genuine love and care for my child. And I started to cry in thankfulness and joy that I could experience what it meant to be an empathetic, understanding, patient, and loving dad. A parent that the Lord was working in me to be this entire time. This tin man was gaining a heart. God was melting my heart of stone and moved, and moved it much closer in becoming a heart of flesh. I'd experienced a greater freedom from being trapped within my own rage. Since then, of course, of course, of course, I still, I still get annoyed and angry with my kids. Of course. But my, my anger towards my kids, Hannah, never had the same push. There, there isn't that message that would fuel such disproportionate anger towards her. My worth is not found in my kids or how others treat me. It's not even defined by my past. No, my worth has already been determined by my Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus. Psalm 139, 13, 14, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God's truth came to me and met me in my darkest shame and pulled me out towards greater freedom. See, see God, God doesn't just expose your stumbling blocks in his silence. He deals with it in his timing by his truth. Now, please, please don't misunderstand me. Notice I never said I was all done with my sin and struggles, that all of a sudden I'm cured from my idol of ministry, my grief over my past, and, or the shame of being a poor parent. I, I still need to depend on God and find help, support, and accountability in community for these things. But, but when it comes to my idols, grief, and shame, they just don't have the same bite. They just don't have the same bite. The Lord is faithful. He is dealing with your baggage and addressing it his way, whether that be your idol factory of a heart or the lonely corner of your grief or the hiding place of your shame. The question is, how is he working in your life now? What a relentless lover of our souls that we have in God our Father. Amen. From his silence to his truths, he forges true and genuine faith in his perfect way. And finally, how else does he deal with our, how else does he forge greater faith in us? His end, his end. 
Verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus would extend his mission to this foreign woman and heal her daughter and mature genuine faith and mature genuine faith in her despite the ethnic and circumstantial barriers that lied between them. Just as Jesus healed and extended the grace of his mission to this foreign woman, so too there would be an extension of grace, healing, and salvation for, for us. Because of Jesus, salvation and holistic healing. Holistic. What I mean by holistic is that includes the emotional, psychological, physical, spiritual, through and through healing. All of that is available. It's possible for all who believe in his death and resurrection. It is his death on the cross that would bring the blessings of Israel worldwide, undoing the curse of death and sin. Question. What was one of the purposes of Jesus' healing, one of, his, one of the Jesus' healing hand and miracles experienced towards uh, in scriptures? Right? What, what was the purpose of all that? What was one of the purposes? The same purpose for the moments and glimpses of healing that I experienced towards my idol's grief and shame. A glimpse of what? A glimpse of the end. A foreshadow of his end where we will find the permanent, perfect, and eternal healing from all sin and the effects of the fall. So what does that mean for you and me? This is what it means. It means, for me, it means my dashed hopes are not my end. It means my grief is not my end. It means my shame is not my end. But your trust issues with the Lord are not the end. Your anger and frustration you felt towards your spouse and your kids on your way to church this morning is not your end. Your addictions are not your end. Your doubts are not your end. Your tears of loneliness are not your end. Your inhaler, your CPAP, or whatever medication you may be on for your sickness is not your end. There will come a day when those who trust in Jesus for salvation will have all their weaknesses erased, all their tears wiped away, all their fears eliminated, and all of their pain and brokenness fully healed, beautifully encapsulated by a perfect faith, perfectly forged and complete, his way. That is our end as the children of God. As Revelation 22, 3-5 says, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God, and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. You could just take just a couple of seconds and just... Come before the living God, and I don't know what kind of season you're in, but it could be a season of exposing. It could be a season of truth-telling. It could be a season where he's giving you glimpses of the end, hints of healing, a foreshadow of what is to come, the great hope of our future. In perfect fellowship with him, with perfect faith, forged by him. His way. Let's take a moment and pray, and I'll close us. Heavenly Father, you are you are good. You're astounding. You're amazing. 
We praise you for the wonderful works that you're doing in our lives. Because we deserve none of it. Lord, continue to deal with our fears and anxieties. With the issues that, that, may, that we may not know are even there. Take care of the walls that lie between us and you. Because we want you, Lord, more than anything in this world. And so may your will continue to be done in us. Perfect our faith as Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. May we continue to walk in brokenness, reflecting the beauty of the gospel, the power of your hand that heals as a testimony for the world to see of how good and great you truly are. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.